0: Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, who we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap up posts, Another Weekends, which is sort of like our Christian Cosmopolitan's grace infused guide to the contents of the interwebs as we see them for the week. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by some of the usual suspects to discuss the contents of Another Weekends. But first, I had the great privilege this week of talking with my friend and friend of the show, Mark Oppenheimer. Mark has written several books on a host of topics and is a columnist for the Los Angeles Times, where he writes op-ed pieces and a contributor to Tablet Magazine and hosts of the wildly popular podcast Unorthodox, which if you've listened to the show for any length of time, you know I'm a big fan. Mark, welcome!
1: Thank you. Great to be back.
0: You're close to your one, one year anniversary. No, for the podcast,
1: past it. I think the one year anniversary was sometime in early August or late July. So we're we're like a year and a quarter old.
0: You're you're older than us.
1: If we're a baby boy, we're now walking. If we're a baby girl, we're now talking.
0: We had our one- year anniversary on October 30th which is the eve of Halloween and Reformation Day.
1: Awesome I had no idea there was such thing as Reformation Day but these are the things I learned talking to you What is it I mean, honor what is what happened on October 30th historically on
0: October 31st Martin Luther sent it, it was the night, day of the 95 theses I see
1: you know Yaroslav Pelikan's line about that? Some people said he mailed them. Some said he nailed them to a door. Either way, we can say they were posted. Right.
0: <laughs> he would have tweeted them today, like just one at a time. It would have been a, Hash, a
1: Twitter storm. Ha- hashtag say. screw indulgences. <laughs> right. I am amazed at the confidence I encounter when I talk to some Protestants uh, or Catholics, for that matter, and I'm speaking primarily of people of a very evangelical and often conservative stripe. But it could be otherwise. The confidence that their particular tradition um, is is the perfect instantiation of what Christ would have wanted in the contemporary world. You know, again, you don't find a lot of people like this. But you know, once in a while, you'll talk to some pastor, and he'll be Southern Baptist or PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, and you know, you'll say, "Do you really feel like you've figured something out?" with certainty that, say, the Methodists haven't, or the Lutherans haven't, or, or the Catholics haven't. And they'll be like, yeah, yeah. No, like, if you read Scripture, it is quite clear that what Jesus Christ would be pleased with if he returned today is... First church, you know, Presbyterian Church of America, like we have actually continued what Christ would have wanted in our liturgy, in our theology. We have nailed it. And it's kind of like, how could you possibly believe that with any certainty, given the fallibility of humans? And yet they do.
0: This is like the fundamentalist pastor is talking with a Presbyterian and they're talking about the differences in their church life and worship. And the fundy says, well, that's okay you go on worshiping God in your way and we'll do it in his <laughs> mark you were just with a group of episcopalians which you described on the on, on orthodox in glowing terms it sounds like you had a lovely time with the episcopalians down in was it north carolina
1: yeah they have a conference center near asheville uh called Canuga. And they have conferences there all year round. And this conference, the Lansing Lee conference uh, named after Lansing Lee, the third or the fourth and his son Lansing Lee, the fourth or the fifth was there. And that Lansing has a son who's either the fifth or the sixth. I forget. These are, you know, longtime Episcopal families. This was a conference. There are about 80 people there. Uh, Most of them, I would say uh, Episcopal lay people, you know, Episcopalians, but not necessarily priests or rectors. Some of them were. And there were some Presbyterian Church USA people there, you know, spouses of people who had a reason to be there as well. It was really neat. The the conference was titled The Golden Rule in Politics. So we were talking about the current election with some reference to how to reclaim uh, neighbor love at a time when it seems to be shredded by our political system.
0: So when you say the golden rule, you don't mean like do it onto the other before they do it onto you. Right, (laughs)
1: Right, exactly. (laughs) Ah, uh, the actual golden rule, you know. So, and I was there with with my friend Arsalan Iftikhar, who's you know a, a great Muslim public intellectual, human rights lawyer, pundit, talker, uh, writer, and uh, it was a new book out about Islamophobia that everyone should read. So it was a it was a Jew and a Muslim taking the stage several times over three days to talk to a bunch of Episcopalians. It was fun. Well,
0: how was the food? Because yeah, the Episcopalians generally do things pretty well in that regard. There was
1: sometimes. good. Let me say, look, if you believe the. Um, the old joke that, you know, Jews never run out of food and wasps never run out of booze. I think there was some truth to that. I think, you know, the wine was flowing well and it was good wine. There was some beautiful uh, evening cocktail hours out on the, the deck overlooking their several hundred wooded acres, uh, just talking, meeting people, making new friends. And, you know, this is something I definitely want to be doing more of. Like, I love writing, but I would like in my professional life to be new, to be doing more public speaking. And I, I think the Jews are sick of hearing me. And I think that having the opportunity to talk to a lot of, of non-Jews, of Christians about Abrahamic traditions, about Judaism, Christianity, Islam, to be, to teach people who in many cases are very curious about Judaism, but don't know much. That was really fun. I loved being in that teaching role. I really hope to, I hope to talk to more Christian groups in the future.
0: Christians, listen, bring in Mark. He's a great guy. I can testify to that. Thank you. He's a wonderful person. Thank you. And and you've said that in more evangelical venues, people have kind of pulled you aside after or before talks or probably more after and they feel connection to you and said, look, if you just read C.S. Lewis.
1: Right. It's always did about C.S. Lewis. Yeah. When did anybody try to convert you? Nobody just... C.S. Lewis to me, and um, no, nobody tried to convert me. No, 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 no. I mean, were you hurt by that a little? Um, no, because I knew what I was getting. I mean, I know that with a lot of these people were liberal Episcopalians, and they're very sensitive to not be the the overbearing missionizers constantly trying to kind of sidle their way into the heathens' uh, good graces to give them the good news. And I respect that, though you correctly intuit that I love. Of you know people who try to uh, sell me their product. I mean, I, I really enjoy you know I'm the kind of person who answers the door and invites the Jehovah's Witnesses in, and and that's because I enjoy the conversation. So I would have been fine with that if some people had tried to make me a Christian, but it didn't happen. We had a wonderful morning prayers where I offered to lead everyone in a responsive reading of. A psalm, and I was going to chant the Hebrew and Psalm one forty five, I think, which the Hebrews chant as uh, Ashre, glad, glad are we to be um, to dwell in your house, and then I had them respond from their prayer books in English. So in, the Jews typically do it, it was in, in a Hebrew responsive and it takes about two minutes. If you do the Hebrew and then interpolate the English, it takes about four minutes. And this was just something I innovated and I think they really enjoyed it. I really loved it. It was really, it was really, really neat.
0: Christians, if you're looking for a public speaker, this guy <laughs> innovates responsive psalms, multilingual. This is your guy. I mean, and he's great at a cocktail party and you are, you are an extrovert's extrovert. After we spent a lot of time together in New Haven, I'm pretty extroverted guy. I said to my wife, this guy is he is a charm. I mean, you just you talk to so many people and and, and in an unforced way.
1: I like people. No, I do. I do like people, you know, which is why a three day conference was just really, really, really fun. There was another extrovert there. I don't know if you've ever run across Ed Bacon. I know the name. But Ed, who was the dean of the cathedral, the Episcopal Cathedral in Santa Monica, California for many years and and really turned it into a very Santa Monica or Pasadena. I think it was Pasadena. Turned into a very interracial and welcoming.
0: Oh yes, 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 yes. Okay, yeah, sure. I know the congregation. Yeah,
1: he was there. He was a fabulous kind of master of ceremonies and interlocutor. and he knew he he knew Judaism very very well. He he was just deeply learned in a very ecumenical way, and I really came away thinking, you know, I'd always heard good things about him, but this guy is a major American um, Christian. I don't, I don't want to say thinker because I don't think he, I don't think he fancies himself a, a, you know, a constructive theologian, but I think he's a major conversation partner. We, We, I asked him actually, I said, do you, do you think that I should be a Christian? And he said, no. And I said, well, why not? And he said, because Jesus wasn't a Christian. And I thought that was a very profound statement, actually.
0: It was profound and succinct.
1: Yeah, yeah. He was, This guy was a master of succinctness. Like,
0: yeah, Mark, do you find— Okay, in, in Christian circles, very often, you have the pastoral types who more and more kind of become more like social workers, you know, I mean, view themselves less as public intellectuals and right. more like— helping profession and then you have the theologians you know who were more the academics which didn't used to be true i mean you had in the christian tradition before modernity all the great thinkers were also bishops and pastors and dealing with congregation life. in judaism is there that split i mean do you you, like do you have a sort of split track for the rabbinate or people like kind of okay if i'm an intellectual i want to teach and do it like and then
1: judaism is a little weird in that i mean i'm sure christianity has its versions of this problem or this interesting dilemma as well You know, Judaism doesn't have a lot of people in the academy doing constructive rabbinics of of an apologetic type, right? Whereas, you know, in other words— There are people in the academy and in the rabbinate, I would say, in the reform and conservative rabbinate and to a lesser extent, the kind of liberal orthodox rabbinate who are doing um, who are working on constructive problems of theology. Like what are what are contemporary answers to ancient questions that that make sense of or reinterpret ancient law and keep the tradition vital? Um, Once you get into the universities, if you're doing Jewish theology, you, you might be doing sort of more meta theology or philosophy of religion. Or using Jewish wisdom to influence what's basically a secular ethics, doing kind of fusions of that, the way that you'll find Christians who are doing bioethics in your tradition, and, and they're really addressing very secular problems, and then saying, but what does Christianity have to tell us about them? But the people who are doing really, really strict, like normative rabbinics in a very like deep, deep Talmud— are often neither rabbis nor academics they are full-time learners who are submitted who are supported by their communities by their ultra orthodox communities who give them a stipend their wives usually work they're usually men whose wives work whose whose fathers and fathers in law and communities support them so that they can learn the ideal is to learn full time in those communities so like if we have a version of a karl barth for example somebody who's like literally just going to produce scores of volumes or a john calvin right scores of volumes of 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 real normative theology, he's probably a Haredi or ultra-Orthodox Jew who doesn't have any full-time position anywhere.
0: What a great gig.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's also very interesting. If you go to a city like Lakewood, New Jersey, which has a lot of these people in full-time learning, interestingly, although they they view gender roles traditionally, all of their wives work because the ideal is for the man to be learning full-time. And so the women have a lot of these kind of fairly responsible, um, I guess what you'd call pink-collar jobs. A lot of them are like um, non-physician but medical types, occupational therapists, speech therapists, registered nurses, uh, clinical social workers, radiologists, radiation, radiology techs, you know, jobs with good pay, but also good hours where they can get home and take care of the 10 kids. And their husbands just learn in yeshiva full time.
0: This is like my wife and I, like I'm a pastor that doesn't make a lot of money and I do podcasting and some other stuff.
1: And she's a nurse practitioner. There you go. See, essentially, you're an ultra-Orthodox <laughs> Jewish couple. That's exactly right. Could,
0: I, I could be an ecumenical, like, phenomenon. An epiphenomena. It's just um, totally. Mark. You used to write like for I, for years, several years, a number of years. You were pretty celebrated religion columnist for the New York Times. Are you still doing? Am I still celebrating?
1: You, well, you moved to the L.A. Times. So I left the New York Times really just because I wanted to do more kinds of things. I wanted to get out of the um, religion only.
0: Do you feel so great about that? I left the New York Times because that's got to feel like the greatest thing to say.
1: No, I put on my blog. I, if you go to markhopperner and read my blog, there's still only one post there. And from like five or six months ago. And it's where I basically explained my decision to leave. And it was basically like, I fired them, you know. Uh, look, all due respect to the Times, and I'm still writing for the Times Magazine. I have a couple pieces in the works for them that I'm really proud of that are coming out over the next few months. Um, and, but writing a regular column of 900 or 1,000 words just about religion just felt like I had done that for six and a half years. And so um, I didn't have any gig when I left, but then, um, an old friend of mine who's the op-ed editor of the Los Angeles Times called me and said, do you want to do a monthly column for us? And I said, sure, but one condition, I don't want to be writing just about religion. And she said, that's fine. Just do opinion columns on whatever you want. So actually today I have a column up on how um, I have deep misgivings about, about political dynasties and monarchy in America. Like to have two Bushes and what looks like will be two Clintons out of the last you know, five, six presidents um, is really problematic to me. Um, and of course, people are now saying, "Oh, Michelle Obama should run." The the governors of New York and California are both the sons of governors of New York and California, Cuomo and Brown. And and just th- my columns about how how just upsetting this is in a country that fought a war to get rid of hereditary leadership.
0: I read that today actually and thought it was great. Thank you. And- and also, you wrote a column—it might have been your inaugural column, which several Mockingbird folks, I shared it, and it was shared all over the Mockingverse, if there is such a the thing. The thing you wrote on flags on the week of 4th of July was outstanding. Thank you. And everybody should go read that. I don't okay. see
1: how religious people don't think this all the time. I mean, here you are, you're saluting flags. How is that not just the golden calf? How is that not— at least at running the risk of idolatry. It, it should be such a central problem for religious communities.
0: By the way, that's my favorite narrative in the Hebrew Bible. When Moses comes down and Aaron is like, literally like, yeah, but what happened? It's the damnedest thing. They brought me this gold. I threw it in and out was this camp. I'm as shocked as you, Moses. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like Aaron's what? response is great. Who, script. me? Moi? Okay. I'm as shocked as you are. I mean, glad you're back. (laughs) You've also written something about cursive writing in The New Yorker, which I think is elegant. And you wrote your kids in cursive while they were at summer camp.
1: Yeah, my eldest daughter, Rebecca, I wrote her, well, look, I mean, I'm not going to print if I write fast it's cursive, but my wife was taking advantage of the service the camp offers, which apparently lots of camps offer now, of doing um, email, Uh, and they'll print it out for you. Like, the the kids aren't on email, to be clear. They are device-free for the summer at Camp Ramah, which is a conservative Jewish summer camp, There's there's a bunch of them, but my daughter goes to the one in western Massachusetts. Why did you pick that one? You know, we go to a conservative synagogue. That's the sort of centrist movement between reform and orthodoxy kind of politically liberal but but liturgically pretty traditional which I feel like fits me and my wife and and just a lot of kids from our synagogue go there so Rebecca was going to have friends if she went there it's also like an hour and 15 minutes from us 20 minutes from my parents so if there were any problem like we could get a family member there pretty quickly but it's also just a really like down to earth nurturing kind of grubby place which I love so but they will offer this service shockingly to me where they'll print out your emails and give them to your kids as letters And uh, I was like, heck no, like I'm writing her letters with stamps on them. And so, yeah, I wrote this piece for newyorker.com about why it was important to me to, to keep writing to her in cursive. The joke being, of course, that she has trouble reading it because she never has to read cursive. But apparently her counselors help her decipher my crazy old world writing.
0: They're earning their $8 an hour. Exactly.
1: Exactly.
0: Mark, one last question. You
1: you know what? Let's do three. let's do three last questions. Three last? You have Two, time for three? Three, three okay. last questions. Scott.
0: Well, then here you go. I have a couple. Reverend, uh,
1: I have you a question for comp- you. Why do people go by pastor or always use their first name? Why is it Pastor Bob and not Pastor Jones?
0: Some people do the, it's not always, but I don't know. Reverend is an honorific. So you're the Reverend right. Mr. or the Reverend Mrs. So it would be like if someone was president or governor or mayor and people called
1: them honorable. Yeah. Honor- yeah. Like it's, it's just, yeah. just
0: so I weird. and you. It's just become, it's awful but I don't know. I don't go by any, I'm, I'm anti-titular in general.
1: Me too. I get a lot of, I, I have my students at Yale call me Mark. And uh, I've been in some very fierce Facebook wars when I say that I believe that, for, that, I believe there are two acceptable addresses in America, first name and Mr. Slash Ms. And the reason is, and, and by the way, you could throw in a third if, if, if the you know intersex or trans people ever want a different, you know or non-binary people ever want a third one, fine, but it should be along the lines of Mr. and Ms., and the reason is because these are ones that don't announce what your job is. They're, they're democratic. So if I call you Mark, you or if I you call you if I call you Scott, you call me Mark. We're relating as fellow citizens. Similarly, if I call you Mr. Jones, you call me Mr. Oppenheimer. We're fellow citizens. Once you start getting with Doctor, Admiral, Mister, President, I just I hate all of that because it's essentially saying certain people's jobs get them titles. Well, you know, the and I think those titles are no more valuable than janitor or short order cook, you know, all work is honorable. So I'm really anti-title, but people, you, I get a lot of pushback from, especially people from marginalized groups who say, you know, it's really important as a woman with a PhD or as a black man with an MD that people recognize that, you know, I've done this work and that I deserve that respect. And I do understand that, but I, you know, I'm coming at it from a, a different place.
0: Mark, you just said a couple of weeks ago that, you, you were describing, it wasn't, I'm trying to think if it was in the Yom Kippur episode or it might've been right after, but you said that you're somebody that basically it's hard for you to believe when people show grudges because you're not a grudge holder. You're really sort of like, you you really, it's okay. I mean, stuff kind of.
1: Yeah. And I don't even, I really don't mean to make a virtue of that. Like really it's a problem. I, I have such bad memory and such bad grasp of like the details of what's happened to me. I tend to move on so quickly from things and recover so well, which is which is highly um, adaptive and functional. But it means that sometimes there are people who I've had a really bad interaction with and I was a little bit bruised and they were really hurt. And like literally three hours later, I'm fine. And maybe I encounter them a week or two later and I literally can't figure out why they're still not feeling warmly toward me. And sometimes it's been really bizarre where they'll I'll literally have forgotten some very painful interaction we had and it's still weighing on them. And I didn't properly atone with them or, or, make up it make it up with them and they feel like i like it didn't matter to me at all and in a sense it kind of doesn't because i'm just very resilient that way and i just like i don't have the energy or the inclination to stay mad at anyone so but it is it is not always adaptive for other people
0: yeah i found it when you said it i i, I it just stuck with me there's it, it just a graciousness and i experienced
1: it but you know what i mean about that like you say graciousness, and I think it is, but it's not that I'm working to overcome the grudges because I feel it's so virtuous to. I, I hope I would, but it's really just that, like, I'm not built to kind of, like, linger on one emotional state for long. I just don't remember who, I mean, there's, there's some exceptions here. You know, there's some people who've really just wronged me in very important, I mean, very few, I'm talking like under five, but, and I remember that, but it takes, it takes like a, who are they name names? I'll tell you, you know, without naming particular names, you know, I'll actually give you one example because some of your, your readers might know it. Um, I, um, a number of years ago, uh, Harper one, the publishing house published a book by Anthony flew the, the late atheist uh, philosopher that was written by some sort of evangelical types who claimed that Flew had become a deist, had, had become some sort of believer, maybe not a traditional Christian, but had come to accept faith in God. And the story, you can go read my Times Magazine article about it. It was called The Turning of an Atheist. The story, which I'll just tell you in brief, is that he was basically declining and, and they befriended him at some debates where there were sort of atheist versus non-atheist debates and they began se- began sending him all sorts of sort of neo-creationist pseudoscience. And he eventually, as a very elderly person who enjoyed the friendship, was like, oh yeah, this maybe this could make sense, maybe there could have been an original divine spark, blah, 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 and started saying very vaguely deist things. And they then sort of swooped in, gave him a big book contract, set him up with some ghostwriters and published in his name something that, that he really didn't even understand. And, um, I wrote about all this and it it made,
0: yeah, I've read the piece and I encourage our listeners go look
1: at it. It's really interesting. It made everyone involved look terrible, including, including Harper one, the publishing house that does a lot of Christian work that publishes CS Lewis among others. And instead of admitting, I mean, they were completely nailed. Like it was completely obvious. Flew didn't even know what was in his own book you know, and instead of just admitting graciously, yeah, like we really overplayed our hand. We didn't realize he was this far gone. We didn't realize he was writing that little of the book himself and just apologizing and taking the book off the shelves. They issued a press release saying, you know, he stands by his story and Oppenheimer, you know, got it all wrong. And they sort of attacked me and I didn't care because anyone who read the article, like <laughs> they they came off so laughably badly. But, um, Whenever I see the editors or the editorial assistants from Parper One, I still think of them as low-integrity people because it's still not too late, right? They could still take that book out of circulation, and they didn't because it fed a certain need among certain evangelicals to win over converts, and to get an atheist convert is like the biggest prize of all. So it was just – it's just like basic – You
0: think that's better than a Jew?
1: Yeah, probably. Oh, sure. I think so. I don't know. I mean you would know better than I, but I think so.
0: I I think it depends on your circles. Yeah,
1: I think it depends on your circles. But – so yeah, I remember a few people who I think just – because I still would see some of these characters at like the American Academy of Religion Conference and they're still hawking his book and, you know, in paperback now and the guy's dead. And it's just like, it's cruel to his widow. It's like, it's ugly, it's immature. And it's just all about a buck, you know? And it's sort of, it's just, um, it's just juvenile um, and, and boorish. And so I remember that, and and I still think poorly of the people involved with that. But like, really, but in terms of people I've had fights with, or people who've insulted me, and you know, I, I just forget all that stuff. So it's it's an interesting way to be.
0: Who is your dream podcast guest? Like the the one you want? Like worse than
1: right now? I'm in a bit of a personal. You know, I'm personally miffed that Abby Jacobson, who's one half of the duo on the Comedy Central show Broad City, uh, won't come on our show. Why won't she come on? Well, she has a new book out called Carry This Book. She's a very um, proudly Jewish comedian on a proudly Jewish show. Our fan base is very much like, you know, very overlap, very much overlaps with her fan base. And I think we're just not big enough for them. I think, you know, she's doing major, major book signings in big theaters that hold hundreds of people. She's doing network TV. She'd probably do Terry Gross on NPR, but she won't do, uh, like, her her handlers won't let her do us. She probably hasn't even gotten the request.
0: Everyone from Mockingbird, tweet her (laughs) and say with hashtag unorthodox, like, just do it. Yeah. We'll get get it via social media. We'll make it happen. Christians. Who's your dream guest? Howard Stern.
1: Howard Stern, yeah. Oh, he'd be a dream guest of ours, too, for sure.
0: Sure. I mean he's he's you know he's so allergic to interviews in fact the New York Times piece they did with him a few weeks ago he almost didn't talk to them Wow! Yeah. and then his his agent uh, uh, Buckwald I, I forget the guy's first name but said like basically they're gonna run it either way right. so go talk to them and so eventually he let them take a photograph which he's like oh my god get me on my good side this is awful Robin it's horrible <laughs> and so, and so he, he did and it was a beautiful piece but I mean I think because he's such an in, he's such he is the best Interviewer in media, yeah. in my opinion, like and some of it's the venue because he can go, especially on serious. Like he can go ninety minutes with Colbert if he wants to,
1: or Lady Gaga.
0: But, but some of it is he can free associate. Totally, and no one does it any better. Yeah, no, I
1: completely agree. I completely agree. We would love to have him. But, you know, we're not holding our breath.
0: Me, n- me neither. Mark, what was it when you met uh, two people? I just want to know if you have time. Yeah. Like the first, like the way you became friends with them. Leah Leibowitz and Duo Dickinson. Did you know right away with both of them? Hey, I think this is going to be one of my friends.
1: Yeah. I mean, Duo and I sat next to each other at the wedding of our friend Arnold Gorlick, who's a great uh, local character here in New Haven, runs an amazing art house cinema, Madison Art Cinemas. And and he got married a few years ago and Duo and I were seated at the same table. And that was Arnold's brilliant brilliance to seat us near each other with our wives and we, and we all hit it off. So that was great. And I did know I'd be friends with him because he's just such a funny, likable guy. And Liel, it was when I started working at Tablet and same thing. I mean, both of them are really nerdy and into, into books and ideas, I think the way I am. But the other thing is that they're guys who don't take themselves too seriously. Like my sort of rule is if you can't laugh at yourself, we're, we're, we're through. And, absolutely absolutely which is actually is one thing that makes this presidential election so depressing is trump literally can't laugh at himself and i think hillary can behind closed doors but for reasons of public persona doesn't want to show any weakness so you have two candidates who literally can't take a joke or, or won't make jokes contrasted with like barack obama who's very good at being self-deprecating um reagan was very good at being self-deprecating actually george bush the first one the, both bushes were pretty good at it um so we we do have politicians who can laugh at themselves. We don't right now. And the thing about Liel and Duo is they really can. I mean, so can you, which is great. Yeah,
0: and I feel like some of that is like if everything is politicized, nothing is political. And I I feel like some of the inability to laugh. Yeah, and it's everything. It's like everything is so high stakes. Yeah. Like, like like and you like you can't even just not support someone yeah you have to denounce them like the there has to be there's a denouncement culture and I feel like that totally is what all the election anxiety I think some of it is just it, it feels like like every square inch of your body and soul has to be politicized in some way, yep. and it's just the, the, the anxiety. So, how do you overcome anxiety in the election? Like, what's the what's the post hangover cure? What's the, is hair it, the This job? is
1: my last question. Um, I think people move on. You know, the nice thing, the bad thing about America, and the good thing about America is we're fundamentally not very political. We're interested in sports and video games and fast food and
0: and movies that sometimes you pay for one and get two or three.
1: I'm in a lot of trouble on Twitter for having sneaked into movies. Don't even. Mark,
0: me. my wife and I do that. Like, total total like, cause we don't go to the movies and then like you go and we just want to spend the day there. Yeah,
1: totally. So, I mean, the bad news is we we move on because we're shallow, superficial people who don't know much about or care much about politics. The good news is it keeps us out of mostly out of civil wars. Like we don't tend to bear those kinds of, you know, perpetually rutting grudges against each other. So I think we'll move on. I think the Trumpkins will move on. Um, I think the Bernie Sanders people have already moved on, much to my dismay, because I was I was a Sanders voter. But you know, people move on; they'll move on to the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl is coming. That's what that's what that's what will happen. Commercials. Yep. Yep.
0: Mark, thanks for being with us. And also, I just want to say I'm so sorry about your dog. Thank
1: you. JJ's hanging in there, but um, you know, we'll uh, we'll have a proper burial when the time comes.
0: When I cuddle my pit bulls, I think about her. And you know, you're a good, you're a gentleman and a scholar and a great dog. Owner. Will you come
1: back on Unorthodox soon? Anytime, man. We're going to set that mother up.
0: I am there. I I love it. I am an evangelist. All right. I would like to. In all sincerity.
1: I'd like to send a personal invitation to all of your listeners. Here's what I want from them. I want them to listen to Unorthodox. Um, and we have a couple weird shows coming up. Like we just had a live show in Boston. This next one's an election special. But if you go back to like the ones before that, like our episodes in, you know, in October, listen to those. And then I want them to send me a personal email at Moppenheimer, my first initial and last name at tabletmag.com and tell me what they think of the show or send me Gentile questions for the Jewish panelists. That's what we want from them.
0: Mark, I have actually gotten Facebook messages from Mockingbird listeners that have asked me, because I've said your podcast is one of the only podcasts I listen to on the day it comes out, like religiously. Awesome. And I've gotten like, messages like late in the day on thursday have you heard the new unorthodox that's yeah. so
1: sweet that's amazing it's a great it's a great
0: show i came across it by accident it was it popped up in one of the featured things you know, like, like early on and i i after the first episode i was hooked
1: thank you well we love your show too and similar sensibility similar seriousness but also with a sense of humor and um you know i really want to hear from your from your people so thank you for having me on <laughs>
0: God said to Abraham, Kill me a
1: son. Abe said, Man, you must be putting me on. God said, No. Abe said, What? God said, You can do what you want, Abe, but the uh, next time you see me coming, you better run.
0: Once more into the breach with well, Carrie. I'm going to say you're a usual suspect now. Carrie Willard from Houston, Texas. Hello. How are you doing? I'm great. I heard you were a big hit at the Mockingbird Conference in Oklahoma City. Thank you. I heard that people, as they were snoozing through Deezy's talk, were like, <laughs> Carrie. Not true. Carrie.
2: There was no snoozing. I had so much fun. It was so much fun.
0: She was really
3: terrific. I can't. We're going to put the audio up probably first thing next week and
2: i just think people should run and not walk to listen to her talk
0: okay so there so dz was people were not snoozing through david's talk
2: no i was i told him i was very grateful that he went last because it wouldn't have been fair to make anybody else follow him so it was great he wrapped everything up it was but everybody was great it was really oh, hush. Fun. it was fun it was super fun and then the next day when i got home i took my own kids to church so That kind of brought it all full circle. It was great.
0: Mm. And David, can we announce that you have a forthcoming cover story? Oh, yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah, why not? I just found out today that the the cover story for the January-February issue of Christianity Today is going to be some reflections that I put together on law and gospel and their resonance 500 years after sort of Luther originally kind of really broke through to that hermeneutic when it came to reading the Bible, but also interpreting life.
2: That is so great. Congratulations. So, is next year, next year Halloween, is that, is our Martin and Katie Luther going to be the Halloween costume?
3: <laughs> I, I highly doubt it. I highly <laughs> doubt
2: it. Next, no, no, not so. Just, just me and my husband. That's yeah, all right. Just you guys. We can be the trendsetters. It's all right. It's okay.
0: I'm pulling for Lex Luthor so, <laughs> yeah. to make a better. <laughs> But enough about Halloween and things past, like the Oklahoma Conference. As Carl Barth says, if Christianity is not eschatological, it is not Christianity at all. Let's talk the Cubs and Bill Murray. The Cubs,
3: yes. It was super cool yesterday, I thought, to see baseball, uh, the, the nation completely transfixed by baseball. Yet again, uh, it, it felt like it had been quite a while since that had happened. I'm saying that as someone that was absolutely obsessed with the New York Mets when I was a kid. And when they won in 1986, it was about the biggest thing that had ever happened in my life. I got to stay up that night. And this is like that to on, you know— steroids pumped up to 11 and you know shot into the you know stratosphere i could go on i could go all night um anyway what what you refer to scott is this um story that is that is apparently very true once again bill murray coming into the mocking cast uh this is what uh, this is the report in the chicago tribune uh a cubs fan named karen mitchell walked up to the uh, Progressive Field box office on Tuesday in Cleveland, hoping to miraculously get a ticket to Game 6 of the World Series. Uh, She was denied, you know, which was you could have predicted, but I guess she saw Bill Murray somewhere in the vicinity, and she decided to kind of follow him maybe or shadow him. Anyway, she's walking near him, and Murray turns around, sees that she's wearing a Cubs jersey, and gives her a ticket to get into the game. This is Michelle talking. She says, he turns around and says, here, here's a ticket. And he kind of shuttled me into the door. I thought it was just a ticket, you know, to get in. But it was a ticket to sit right here. Uh, it it turns out that Michelle's ticket was the ticket to sit right next to Bill Murray, which was just a few rows behind home plate. So she watched Game 6 as a Cubs fan next to Bill Murray. Uh it, Talking the whole time about growing up Cubs fan, Bill Murray's becoming like America's grandpa, sort of there to uh, celebrate uh, and, and overdo it in our victories and kind of make them even more abundant, and then there to sort of comfort us in our failures. And <laughs> it seems like this is just this great picture of grace in the middle of uh, you know a tough week, as lots of people have been
0: saying. Carrie, Bill Murray fan, Cubs fan.
2: I love Bill Murray. So we we're baseball fans in the sense that we love whatever team is playing playing, especially wherever we live. And the Astros were not playing this year. And so, of course, we became Cubs fans like everybody else. My husband was watching. We were watching. I I love Bill Murray, though. I love him in um, What About Bob? I'm sailing. I'm really sailing. So I would have loved to have uh, been a little mouse in that corner when he got to sit next to this this lifelong fan with, with him.
0: And more fascinating, I'm scooping you both. You guys know that in 1993, this is run by the LA Times, Mission Viejo student by the name of Michael Lee had no idea what to write in his senior yearbook picture. And he wrote, and he's a good-looking guy, nice full head of hair, <laughs> decent tie, uh, light gray suit. He wrote, Chicago Cubs 2016 World Champs. You heard it here first. So basically, this man is a prophet, and you, Harold Camping people, <laughs> I, would, <laughs> I would move out to California or wherever he is now because this man prophesied it. Uh, let me do the math first. Seven, carry the thing. Seven, <laughs> plus 16. 23 years, a prophet. Amazing. <laughs> Ah, Star Wars, if they should fire wars, please let these Star Wars stay and pay. how about that nutty Star
3: Wars bar? And, and moving on. Next the- up, we have uh, a Mammoth article that was cover story of time last week, actually, the November 7th issue. Or it might be on newsstand still when people listen to this. Teen Depression and Anxiety, Why the Kids Are Not Alright by Susanna Schrobsdorf, which is sort of a wonderful German name. But uh that's kind of where the uh lightheartedness ends. It is an extremely heavy article about um mental health. In uh, America, especially among teenagers, I'm, I'll read it to you from it. Anxiety and depression in high school kids have been on the rise since 2012 after several years of stability. It's a phenomenon that cuts across all demographics, suburban, urban, and rural, those who are college-bound and those who aren't. Family a financial stress can exacerbate these issues, and studies show that girls are more at risk than boys. But about 30% of girls and 20% of boys totaling 6.3 million teens have had an anxiety disorder, according to data from the NIH. And, of course, that's you know multiplied by the fact that only about 20% of young people uh, with a diagnosable anxiety disorder only ever get treatment. Um, the author, Susanna, goes on to kind of try to figure out what's going on here. And what she comes up with are some really interesting things. Of course, this is reminiscent of our mental health issue, which a friend of mine called me up and said it was uh, – Uh, We should have called it the mental illness issue Uh, But, uh, you know, I I stand by it in every possible sense She says, they are the post-9-11 generation Raised in an era of economic and national insecurity They've never known a time when terrorism and school shootings weren't the norm They grew up watching their parents weather a severe recession And perhaps most important, they hit puberty at a time When technology and social media were transforming society Uh, Someone at Cornell was saying that it's, It's that they're in a cauldron of stimulus they can't get away from or don't want to get away from or don't know how to get away from. Um, and, uh, you know, the, she goes on. I'll, I'll get a few more things. It's too rich not to, to ignore. It's hard for many adults to understand how much of teenagers' emotional lives is li- life is lived within the small screens on their phone. Um th- there, there is no firm line between their real and online selves a big study of 13 year olds recently found uh, that you can now, even if you're living in a completely remote place, you can find yourself really caught up in what, what this is. she calls a national thicket of internet drama in other words, and this is me speaking here, this uh, epidemic of helicopter parenting where children never experience anything bad or negative which we've talked about the last couple of casts actually uh, they're finding that online the opposite true in fact that they're completely the kids are operating completely independently of adults and and sort of driving the train and really um Kind of just being uh, torn to shreds by one another in online spheres that parents just don't know about. This one teenager says it's hard to describe the stress. I'm calm on the outside, but inside it's like a demon in your stomach trying to consume you. The, one of the uh, the final finding I'll report is that what what researchers are noticing, as opposed to other generations, is that. These kids, there's a higher instance of people cutting themselves, of self-harm. Uh, Susanna writes, Self-harm is certainly not universal among kids with depression and anxiety, but it does appear to be the signature symptom of this generation's mental health difficulties. All of the nearly two dozen teens I spoke with for this story knew someone who engaged in self-harm or had done it themselves. It's hard to quantify the behavior, but its impact is easier to monitor. A Seattle Children's Hospital study tracked the hashtags people use on Instagram to talk about self-harm and found a dramatic increase in their use in the past two years from, you know, 1.7 million search results in 2014 to 2.4 in 2015. Uh, She sort of theorizes that self-harm is tied to how we see the human body. A lot of value is put on our physical beauty now. All of our friends are Photoshopping their photos. This is one kid speaking. It's hard to escape that need to be perfect. And that if you're feeling disembodied, disconnected, or numb, um, if you don't feel real, there's something about pain and blood that brings a person into their uh, body. So uh, I could go on and on. Um, but uh, there's over and over there's this reiteration, um, and I actually talk about it, of course, in that law and gospel article you mentioned, Scott. The 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 need to be perfect.
2: It's not just I think that this, that they're living these these lives on the the phones and on the the screens, but there's really no opportunity to reinvent yourself when you live your life online too. That. When I, you know, not I don't feel like it was so long ago, but it was so long ago when I was a teenager and I went to church camp. I got to be a completely different person than the person I was at school. And there's no reinventing yourself when everybody knows who you present yourself to be online. That that's the the one and the same. There's no opportunity for a reset button or a reinvention. Or when you go to college, the, your whole history is just there online. And there's there's just I think adolescence can be such a great time to try on different personalities and try on different interests and I think if everything is recorded and everything is out there it takes away a lot of that
0: Carrie, what was the most embarrassing interest you tried on?
2: (laughs) Um, I was in the Well, I was in some like traditionally embarrassing things that didn't embarrass, like I was in show choir, but that's not embarrassing to me because I loved it. I was in future business leaders of America simply because my friends were, but I wasn't in any like accounting classes or anything. So I just went along on the trips and had fun, but I am not a, business leader of America. So uh, m- maybe I w- maybe that's still in the future. Maybe future business of leaders of America. I don't know. As hey, Star Jones did. would
0: say, though, you are a lawyer.
2: I am a lawyer. I am a lawyer. Uh, but yeah, I, that was probably in terms of the identity trying on, the interest trying on thing, probably objectively not very embarrassing the way that other things were objectively embarrassing. But in, in retrospect, that really, that, that didn't stick. Why didn't it stick? 'Cause I, I I'm, it's not a real interest of mine. <laughs> You know, I, I I like business. Business is great. Business, business, business. But it's not. <laughs> no, That's part of my talk from Oklahoma City. That I I did a little Unikitty impression from the Lego Movie about business, 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 numbers, numbers, numbers. Is this working? Like it's it's not. It's it's just not one of my. I'm I'm not going to check my stock report six times a day. Um, I'm grateful for people who do, but it's not who I am.
0: Our last article, which is from Commonwealth, right? Yeah, Commonwealth. This
3: is forwarded to me by a friend who actually works over at Commonwealth. Uh, Children of God, Cormac McCarthy's Misfits. It's written by Matthew Boudway. Who is actually, I think, the editor of Commonweal, and it's one of the better articles I've read in a while. It's really fascinating. If people, if you've read Cormac McCarthy, if you're only familiar with the movies or if you're only familiar with his persona, I highly, highly recommend it. I'm sure Ethan's going to write about it tomorrow.
0: Um, what are the for for the. Uh- Cultural Philistines among the crowd. I'm saying myself.
3: (laughs) We're talking No Country for Old Men. We're talking Blood Meridian, uh, you know, All the Pretty Horses. We're talking The Road. I
0: almost read The Road and I have seen none of those movies. Well, it's pretty bleak stuff. And what the author starts out as talking about is that Cormac McCarthy is usually
3: painted as this, the ultimate amoral you know he's got kind of, it he gives indiscriminate attention and often to very horrific things that sort of to this uh, objective descriptive uh, voice that people find really unsettling and uh, they therefore never equate him. He never gets listed among the great sort of Christian writers or, or Catholic writers, even though, um, you know, plenty of people that are not practicing Catholics get uh, – this is common wheel, so they're interested in Catholicism. Uh, but Matthew Boudouet says, beneath the neuter austerity of MacArthur's prose, a keen moral imagination is at work. One that finds hints of communion, of unguessed kinships in unexpected places, including some any sane person would avoid. If Graham Greene's fiction haunts the seamier quarters of purgatory, MacArthur's often harrows hell with a disconcerting zeal. Um... His work is often moving, but rarely consoling. Faith, hope, and love get a hearing, but despair and bitterness often seem to prevail. He, uh, he says, McCarthy's most memorable villains, and anyone who's seen No Country for Old Men, for example, remembers Anton Sherga, who's uh, played by Javier Bardem. Uh, they tend to be certain about everything. This, I think this is so fascinating. About themselves above all. Their absolute certainty makes courage unnecessary, since courage always answers to risk. And for these characters, all of them paid-up determinists, there can be no real risk, for the outcome is never in doubt. McCarthy's heroes, by contrast, don't pretend to have all the answers. They often find themselves stumped or thwarted. They are subject to doubt and capable of regret. And this is me talking. It's not surprising that uh, people have always noted that McCarthy's villains always get the best lines. But uh, the Boudouet goes on to say, McCarthy's heroes hope there's a world to come, but fear there may not be. His villains and antiheroes, meanwhile, are sure there isn't one, and they're glad of it because they basically they don't want to meet their victims. This is the final paragraph, and I think it's worth reading in total. The final paragraph is in reference to Child of God, which is uh, McCarthy's novel from 1973 that I don't think many people have read, certainly not myself. He says, Cormac McCarthy's abiding interest in a category of characters we might loosely call losers— The alienated, the undesired and undesirable, the freakish and the forgotten, the terminally disappointed may be the best evidence that he possesses an essentially Christian moral imagination. It is possible to read Child of God as a test case for Karl Barth's claim that we have to think of every human being, even the oddest, most villainous or miserable, as one to whom Jesus Christ is brother and God is father. Can we really think of Lester Ballard? He's the villain in that book. In that way, no matter what we say we believe about the extent of God's love, can we accept or even imagine that a murderous necrophiliac really is a child of God in a way that, like ourselves, is in no other? Late in the novel, McCarthy suggests that one might even pity Ballard if one could see him in his cave. Ballard's neighbors in the hill country of Tennessee have every reason to hate him. Ballard, for his part, has pretty good reasons to hate the, quote, gods. If grace is no less real or important than justice, then it must somehow find room for itself between these two reasonable hatreds. Christian readers of this novel are forced to ask themselves if their god could really command anyone to love a creature as vile as Lester Ballard without illusion Uh, but also without reservation.
0: Carrie, have you seen all of those movies? No. Uh, Have you seen any of them? No. (laughs) So there is grace for cultural Philistines like us. Yes, yes. You know, there it
2: is. The whole thing reminds me, though, of children. I don't know if all children do this, but my children need a good guy and a bad guy. And they want to make the bad guy really, really bad and the good guy really, really good. And in my maternal instinct, you know, Diesel 10 from Thomas and the Tank Engine, no, he's just misunderstood, or we're all good and bad, and people make choices. Um, they really kind of need that dichotomy of of good and bad to the point where if they can't come up with some kind of villain, they'll they'll invent one just to have a bad guy. Um, and I hope that they're that they're learning that we're all we're all good and we're all you know, we all we all have bad impulses and we all are made in God's image. But I think all of us as humans want there to be a, a, a bad guy that we can pin everything on. Um, and I but I, I like that nuance. I, I prefer that nuance and I want that. Um, but but it's interesting to see children kind of work that out developmentally, too. Yeah,
3: the, the the writer Matthew says that a reader might want an equal and opposite hero to resist the terrible villain as uh, the judge, a saint if not a god, perfect in goodness as the villain is perfect in wickedness. Instead, in Cormac in McCarthy's novels, we get just another sinner, albeit one with a conscience.
2: I think that's good fiction. I think that's that's good writing. I think that's good character development. That it's it's complicated, right? Alanis Morissette. Yeah. <laughs> Not ironic. It's complicated, but you know, then then my kids dress up as the the villains for Halloween. So it's you know, it's complicated.
3: The road is sort of unremittingly bleak, though it says like uh, I think it it's got like one line at the very end that you know that they mention in the communal article that kind of that mentions God that there's a, there's like a little crack uh, open to the door of uh, toward toward
0: hope. Uh, we'll do the next podcast. On that very topic. And I thought the thing we didn't talk about that was the most interesting was Karl Barth, because I think his corrective to the doctrine of election was he fixed the one Reformation mistake, which was the hidden God. You can't go behind the cross. The cross has to go all the way back to eternity. Or as P.T. Forsyth said, there's a cross at the heart of God. Thank Thank you, you. friends. Once more, into the. Sorry about the
2: Skype deal.
0: And (laughs) no, Carrie, we're still recording. You have to say something for the fans. (laughs)
2: Okay. All right. I'm done. Done. Go
0: ahead. The electing God, who is also the elect man in and as Jesus Christ, is for you, whether you're Skype success or not. Thanks for listening to The Mocking Cast. As always, you can find any of the content we reference on our website, ember.com. If you like what you heard, please cruise on over to iTunes, give us a rating, maybe even write a review, hopefully a positive one, or pass it along to a friend via social media. We exist because of the enthusiasm and support and generosity of you, our listeners, for which we're grateful. The podcast is produced by yours truly, ably assisted by my associate, David Peterson. Thanks for listening, and have a great weekend.